The following podcast is brought to you by Magic Mind, a little elixir that boosts your energy, memory, and mood without a boatload of caffeine and healthy ingredients. Go to the link in the description to support the channel and use Broken Silicon 20 to get 20% off your first order. And it is also brought to you by CDKOffer.com. Use offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off Windows codes and die shrink for 3% off everything on the website. All right, let's get to the show. Welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom. And you know, I, I'm actually, I am a Rottweiler chained to a post that's about to break, chomping oh. at the bit. Which actually, I think chomping at the bit is a reference to horses. I don't think you put bits in dogs' mouths, typically. But either way, whatever metaphor you want, I'm excited to get into this one. I have way more to say about some of the recent news that's dropped than I really expected that I would. I'm glad we delayed this episode. Uh, but let me introduce my co-host. I, I will introduce myself. I'm Dan. Before I break this chain and start biting at the news, how are you doing today, Dan? Eh, I'm pretty good, I suppose. How about you? I'm good. I mean, I don't know. My sleep's been all over the place for the past month, and I feel like I'm finally starting to get back into that rhythm where I get up at 10 a.m., which a lot of people go... Oh, that's not so early. And it's like, yes, but I usually, anyone who supports more slides that on Patreon and frequents the Discord can tell that I clearly work until about 8 or 9 or even 11 p.m. usually. The problem was I was still working that late and then going to bed at 5 and then still insisting. <laughs> yeah. I would not let myself sleep past noon. I was like, no, no, I will not be one of those people that just gets up at 4. Um, and I think I'm finally starting... To find my center again, Dan. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, another good thing is this reader mail here from Freeman, which you guys can submit if you support us on Patreon. Freeman235 writes in. He says, hey, Dan. Hey, Tom. On the most recent Broken Silicon, I commented and suggested to make Brian Heemskirk an anniversary guest. I don't want to get ahead of myself, so if you wouldn't consider inviting Brian out a few more times, you can cut this question off here. But anyways... If you do consider it, I have a few things to add about this idea. I feel like there have been too many great guests on Broken Silicon recently. What a terrible thing I know. Well, we'll have to do something about that. We'll have to get some crappy guests then. Was, but also, Tom, you've been saying, I want to have you on the show sometime again. Too many times to your recent guests. Broken Silicon is this perfect mating of familiar voices and ideas. A new input from every expert and corner in the industry. And I wouldn't want one aspect to overweigh the other. So if you do not only bring Brian on multiple times, but other great guests from the past, it appears maybe it would make sense that, or it appears that maybe there's potentially too many new and old guests to have on considering the two week cadence for guest episodes. In that case, would you guys mind combining a Dan slash news episode every once in a while with future and current recurring guests like Brian, Steve, from Hardware Unboxed, Tim, Lars, Michael from NX Gamer. So people with a similar generalized view on hardware industry as you guys would join you two every so often as a three-man show on news and a few specialized questions. Then leave the new guests and experts for the guest episodes. Um, That's not a bad idea, and that is something I would consider 
if we got to a point where we had like a dedicated producer for the show or like mm-hmm. we had Gerard on full time and he became a full producer, which is conceivable because that's what it would take. The problem is I handle I am like I'm my own secretary. I am finding guests, responding to guests, responding to sponsors, managing the website, all of this myself. And so I'm being honest with you guys. There is a certain degree where it's just like, oh, Steve is open to coming on Hardware Unboxed next month. Good. I wipe the sweat off my brow and go, I don't need to worry about finding a second guest that month. I've got him an NX Gamer or something. (laughs) See, that's the problem is if you say if Steve's going to come on a news episode, then it's like, ah, now I got to scramble to find another guest for the next week. Yeah. And... It's not that I wouldn't consider doing this. And I've thought about Brian, for example, like if Dan got hit by a car, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you think about that, we could have Brian on to be a surrogate Dan. I think he'd be a good candidate as a person to come on and handle the news with me or something. And there's been people I've had in mind for that. That's something we may try. But a three-person episode just seems like we do podcasts, live streams, and videos. Most Sites only do one of those. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we I don't know that we have the time to organize putting a bunch of guests into mega episodes. Although we did do the Silicon Lottery one that kind of did that. But Yeah. I, I could also see it being useful just as a... If there was like a shorter news week or something, mm. ha- having a truncated news episode followed by a shorter interview. Because I also don't know if you necessarily would want to turn this into a three and a half, four hour long podcast every once in a while. Right. Like the comparison point would be like sacred symbols where it was just Chris Reagan and Colin Moriarty. And they typically had two to three hour episodes and they brought in Dustin, their producers, a third person. And I think the show's very good, but now it is like usually four hours long, but they don't do videos and they have people to handle the emails for them. I do not. Mm -hmm. I would say right now, you might say Broken Silicon is a 300-watt podcast. I don't think I'm ready for a 450-watt podcast. You just get too hot. What about eight or 900? Oh, well, that makes complete sense. I'm sure that's coming out. Oh, good. Um, but you did mention NX Gamer. He should be the next guest, by the way, to talk about what's going on with, uh, well, all of the recent hardware releases, but also... You know, like FSR's implementation into consoles and PlayStation Plus versus Game Pass. So look forward to that as well. You mentioned him, so shout out to that as well. But yeah, so I, I did want to acknowledge this question, though, because it is something that I've, I'm always playing around with the idea of changing formats. It's just right now, I think we're pretty happy with what we're doing, and we're happy that the guests have been so good repeatedly recently. All right, then. Let us get into the corrections and omissions. Spanton Neo writes in, he says, in the Die Shrink released March 21st, you failed to mention and comment on the fact that this Die Shrink was the most important one for a long time. It was Die Shrink number 69. And there will not be another one that is this meme worthy for, I would say, another 351 episodes or maybe 6,900 episodes. Anyway, great thoughts on RSR in that episode. I really recommend that to anyone who's missed it. But no one said nice. No, that's unfortunate. I thought, I mean, I we honestly entirely forgot what we were recording because we were just, it was one of those late at night ones on a specific subject and it just, right when we finished, I was like, oh, we didn't make a 69 joke. I guess we'll just have to live with that. Live with not being 
teenage mentality. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No offense. We did consider saying this. We're not saying we're above making those jokes by any means. QH Freddy writes in, Something to keep in mind with GDDR5 is that early GDDR5 was far slower than late GDDR5. And in terms of capacity, there were big changes as well on the standard. Early Fermi used only around, I think, 3 to 4 gigabit per second, while Maxwell and Kepler used 5 to 7 gigabit per second. Pascal got up to 8 to 9 gigabit per second. So while it spanned quite a large amount of time on the market, it had an almost threefold increase in performance in that time. And I believe he's referencing me and you talking about if people are surprised some version of Lovelace, or certainly RDNA 4, gets GDDR7, that you need to understand that a they use silicon to make RAM chips if the node stagnates, also stagnating will be RAM speed. And he's saying, but they, there was a threefold increase in GDDR5. All right. Yes, QH Freddy, but GDDR6 started at 12 to 14 gigabit per second, and that came out in 2018. By next year, I think we're up to 27. So we are doubling performance in about five years, where GDDR5 seemed to take over a decade to get to triple. So I don't know. I, I think that there's no way around it. We're, we got GDDR6X two years after Turing came out, whereas GDDR5X mm -hmm. came out, I mean, I think well, the 4870, was... 3870 were the first graphics cards. It's not even fair me to get GDDR5. So that took, that, that took like seven years or something for GDDR5X. There's no way around it. The not, the accelerating of node progress again is for sure accelerated ram it, yeah, it, it's, I mean, it is outpacing gddr5 even if gddr5 maybe was the most improvement we've had in one standard yeah and, and like the second generation of cards to come out already had what 21 gigabit per second correct or am i if you, if you include gddr6x which i think you should yeah so i i mean i, I think there's been a pretty big increase relatively fast also i'm getting older so five years feels like less time but <laughs> that's true and honestly it feels like it feels like gdr5 was around for two decades and gdr6 has been around for a month yes <laughs> based on how time is perceived by us getting older um but yeah so those are the corrections uh i guess let us then get into just the first story let us tarry no further story number one NVIDIA reveals Hopper at GTC. And here's the write-up. On March 22nd, NVIDIA announced their first 5 nanometer, uh, actually cross that out, 4 nanometer graphics card to succeed A100. The Hopper-based A100 has the following specs. An 814 millimeter squared, 4 nanometer monolithic die, an SXM5 or PCIe Gen 5 interface form factors that both come with a 5,120-bit 80 gigabyte HBM3 memory interface, or again, depending on if it's SXM5 or PCIe Gen 5 interface, 132 or 114 SMs, 15,872 or 14,592 FP32 cores, 8,448 or 7,296 in 32 cores, 528 or 456 texture units, and up to 4,000 teraflops of FP8, up to 2,000 teraflops of FP16, and up to 1,000 teraflops of TF32, and up to 60 teraflops of FP32 or FP64, which is absolutely crazy for that one. <laughs> and the power yeah. consumption is 700 or 350 watts. 
A few things are immediately noteworthy after this announcement when it comes to the gaming-oriented cards to follow. A100 was up to 400 watts versus the 350-watt RTX 3090. And if you think about that, that means if there's a 700-watt professional mega card on some above PCIe Gen 5 interface, then we should not expect Lovelace to go above that. 450 to 600 watts is looking exceedingly likely for 8102, not 800 watts, just like Moore's Law is dead, and actually recently, I believe, Igor's labs have leaked. Also, Hopper does not launch until quarter three of 2022. This is an overlooked point that makes it more of an MI300 competitor in this reader's perspective than an MI250X competitor. That will compete certainly with Intel's Ponte Vecchio that still isn't out yet and eventually, I think, Rialto Bridge. In fact, the Grace 144 chip the CPU that's going to be bundled with Hopper eventually doesn't even seem to launch until 2023. And finally... Actually, two more things, sorry. The die size is actually similar to A100 again. Again, I would say then, AD102 is probably likely to be around 600 millimeters squared, a similar die size to GA102. And also that four nanometer thing is notable. Multiple contacts that Moore's Law is Dead has spoken with think that this gives Lovelace a 50-50 chance at least of being on four nanometer if they also chose this node for Hopper. Um, so yeah, Dan, I mean, I think we got more interesting things to talk about out of the Hopper reveal than we expected, right? I mean, do yeah. you have any thoughts? I mean, uh, for one, I'm still split with on the, well, I guess you said 50-50 chance uh, on Lovelace being on 4 nanometer as well, because the, I mean, I, I just keep thinking A100 was also based, uh, it also used a different node than um, Ampere, although... We'll see. But yeah, but it's A different fabs. Now it's the same fabs. Yeah, that's true. A100 is a pretty substantially different than Ampere in a lot of ways. Like, I don't know. I, I, I kind of forgot how... I, I had to go back and look at A100 again because I mm. didn't realize how much uh, stronger in every way this one is versus uh, A100. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a <laughs> lot stronger. But yeah, I mean, that's a what... 3x performance uplift in fp32 in two years mm -hmm. well and, and on your point of oh but they use two different nodes for what is it uh, a100 and then uh ga102 yes but that's one data point also consider True. that volta was its own architecture came out first on 12 nanometer and then later lovelace came out also on 12 nanometer with like a 10% smaller die or 20 or, you know, so that's, I, I think the comparison because there are two different architectures, although you might say a 100 is kind of its own architecture, honestly, from the rest of Ampere, but because they are literally two different named architectures, I, I really think the comparison is to Volta and Turing. Hopper is Volta. Lovelace is Turing. Probably same node. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we <laughs> we will see in probably a few months time if uh if it or it will become more clear if it's on four nanometer and i mean i think you've met discussed how like they've bought up a lot of four nanometer capacity it could be <laughs> right and, and, yeah and, and that is a reference to a video i had come out analyzing the hopper reveal that i really recommend people check out um uh, there are a couple other smoking guns I felt that suggested Lovelace could be on four nanometer. Number one, 
We've been hearing all these rumors about how NVIDIA overpaid per wafer for a five nanometer family node. And everyone was like, oh, it must be because they had to because Intel and AMD are buying everything up. Yeah, or they bought a better node than AMD and Intel. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, um, Copite 7 Kimmy, who is one of those Twitter leakers or one of the only ones that I think really is, you can kind of take him at face value, the guy does his research, said that he expected... Hopper to be just below 900 millimeters squared. Now, four nanometer is like a 6% die shrink, I believe, if I remember correctly, over N5. And so, yeah, then, I mean, there's a very good chance something he saw was based on the five nanometer node. They bought up four nanometer and shrunk it because it's almost entirely design compatible between those two nodes. This is no different than what we saw with the Xbox Series X, where the early dies shown mm -hmm. were an earlier seven nanometer, and then the final die was actually on N7P, and it, I believe, was like 10% smaller. So, like, I don't see why some of that, that discrepancy there might not also point to, oh, yeah, now it's on 4 nanometer, that's why it's smaller than Copite said, by almost the exact amount that die shrink allows. Yeah, I, I mean, you said just under 900, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah, that would be like, what, 860, 870 nanome nanometers, millimeters <laughs> squared. So, yeah, that's... Yeah, that, that's in line with what he said, definitely. So there, I don't know. There's just a lot of evidence there on that. And I, I, it would explain a lot about how NVIDIA thinks maybe they can just barely match RDNA 3. Although I guess, and, and so many other things keep le coming out to, that I need to cover or leak before this. I will say, I don't know. I'm gonna, I haven't even talked to you about this yet, Dan. Some of the stuff I heard today about RDNA 3 is, 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 is it's wild. I, I don't, <laughs> and I don't. Even know if I believe it, even my source doesn't, even if there's documentation on it. So we're just going to have to wait and see. I just would say there's mm -hmm. a narrow chance. There's just like literally no chance Lovelace competes. But I, I think it's too early to say. Well, we will see. Um, but, you know, going to 4 nanometer, using the fastest RAM, trying to launch before RDNA 3, which I think it probably will. I don't know. A lot of things in Hopper tell me, like, point to what Lovelace's strategy is. Yeah, I think you're right. Or at least I think we can be informed by what this is. We can make an educated guess like you have with uh, what Lovelace will look like based on what we saw from Hopper today. And yeah, you're right. I think this suggests at least that they're not going crazy with uh, <laughs> power consumption. Well, I mean, define well, crazy. Watts. They're not going um, <laughs> beyond crazy, I guess. <laughs> yes, they're not going to this isn't possible land. They're, I mean, and, 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 you know, we'll get to it in a second in the next story. The 3090 Ti, all counts, it runs fine at 450 watts, meaning if they really built one from the ground up for 500 or something, I believe it. You mm -hmm. know, I just do not believe 800 watts. And what we're seeing from Hopper does not suggest they will try to attempt that power usage. Um, and, and one more thing just to re-highlight on Hopper. Because, again, I saw, a lot of people saw this, and they're like, whoa, MI250X is screwed. It's like, dude, MI250X, I think, technically launched at the end of last year. No, uh, it's not screwed. Uh, it's going to have been out for the majority of a year before Hopper's out. And trust me, you haven't seen shit until you see what <laughs> MI300 is, which will probably yeah. be launching one or two quarters after Hopper, sooner than you guys think. So... Hopper is really an MI300 competitor. Now, who is screwed 
is Ponte Vecchio. <laughs> Although, looking at the specs, Ponte Vecchio is still competitive. It's just not special, and it probably costs twice as much to make. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's their first generation, uh, right? Yeah, it's Intel's first generation. Uh, we'll see. We'll see how Rialto Bridge compares because, yeah, what Ponte Vecchio got leaked, or not leaked, Raja Kadori mentioned it like, what, a year ago? Yeah, it's been a while that we've been talking about Ponte Vecchio. It's been a while we've been talking about a lot of things we're going to talk about in this episode, to be honest. I I feel like that's kind of a trend with uh, some of these data center GPUs. What was the Mm. one that got endless uh, discussion for like two years from AMD? Arcturus. Yeah. Well, here's another one. Arctic Sound. Oh, yeah. Remember that? I, I think I was leaking that in 2019 or something. Yeah. I, and we just saw it a month ago, or I don't know, in a really gimped fashion. Um, but let me let me move on here. Uh, Falto PS5 Series X owner writes in, and he says, People keep mentioning how a Switch successor can rely on DLSS to make up for its weaker specs compared to current-gen consoles, but I'm here doubting how good it could even be. I ask this because DLSS works best when resolution is already high. So for Switch 2 case, Switch 2's case, it feels like it probably won't help as much as everyone hopes it will. For example, I don't think it would turn 1080p to 4K, but I guess it could help 1080p games be locked to 60. Wait, you guys, how do you think they'll use DLSS? And I, and I did want to bring up this reader mail because this is like a honorable mention that they detailed Orin in more detail at their GDC thing. And there was a smaller die variant of it that was 1,024 CUDA cores with a 10-watt TDP. And I'm like, that, that's what the Switch 2 is probably based on right there. Some variant of that chip. Mm -hmm. And with 1,024 CUDA cores, uh, you're looking at something, I mean, you know, at best, I'd say half the performance of like a, Maybe maybe half the performance of an RTX 2050 or something. You know, you're looking at MX 550 territory, probably in performance. If we're lucky, maybe not even quite that. And so, yeah, that's, you know, like an RX. It's not even an RX 470, to be honest, you know. No. It's, mm-hmm. it's very like what I said. It, it seems to suggest something within 30% of a Series S. Now, how will DLSS help that out? I think it can help a lot, actually. I mean, I have DLSS. Uh, I have both a, an NVIDIA laptop and desktop. And my 2060 laptop, I play Battlefield 2042 in 1080p with DLSS on in high quality. And it doesn't look like junk to me. I actually don't. I think it works fine in 1080p now. Did it a year ago? <laughs> no. But it does now. And if they build games from the ground up to use it so they can really tailor to like any artifacts that pop up, I, I think it really can help a lot. Now, will it make it a 4K console? I don't know. Even if it's like really optimized, we're talking about doubling performance. So then you're like at best talking about at RTX 3050 performance. I don't think it's a 4K console. No, maybe there's an outside chance that it's like a 1440p console, but I, I just don't think uh, Nintendo cares that much. And I think they'll probably mm-hmm. go to 1080p. Like what resolution? I mean, what resolutions are the Switch at currently? Like. That's, oh, right, 720p, it's, yeah. it, 30, it's, yeah, it's garbage. So, and, and with, like, d- d- settings below low, like yeah. going in and modifying an INI file in one of your games so it can run below low, like, it's, yeah, it's it's going to be massively stronger, and I think I think the goal is going to be, I, 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 don't, I just have a feeling, 1080p screen, 
when it's in mobile mode, right? I would have named for anything more than that. Especially the Steam Deck isn't even 1080p. And then when you dock it, it its goal will be to run equivalent probably 1440p60 with DLSS, some sort of upscaling around 4K to just not look like crap at 4K60 on a TV. I think that's yeah. its goal. And I think that there will be games where it underperforms a Series S, but most of the time it'll look about the same or a little better. That The processors eh, will be probably weaker, though, so I don't know about that part of it. But pro- again, I think yeah, around yeah. Series S performance plugged in. Yeah, we can hope. But again, we don't know. We don't know if they'll go with some cut-down version of that. They certainly could. Who knows if it'll be 500 CUDA cores and it'll mm-hmm. go, what the hell? I don't think they'll do that, and I suspect, and it's a custom die, so I hope it would have some some of its own performance enhancing tricks up its sleeve. Hopefully, it's just not like the Wii U situation where custom means weaker than imaginable. But we'll just have to see. I just think, uh, but I guess yeah. Just to answer his question one more time, Falto, um, I think will DLSS make up for its weak specs compared to current gen consoles? Make up for it in that it'll be comparable to their performance? <laughs> no. Will it make it so that it should be able to run any games the consoles run as long as it has at least 12 gigabyte, 10, 12 gigabytes RAM? I actually think it'll run modern games. Yeah. Needs we'll an see. SSD, though. Well, yeah, we'll see if they would even go with 12 gigabytes of RAM, but. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if it was eight. Look, I'm not a morning person. <laughs> My dog, Reese, can testify to how hard it is to get me up some days. But at the same time, I'm also not 24 years old anymore. I can't just shotgun two whole pots of coffee during a work day and not have my gut get revenge on me eventually. So what is someone like me supposed to do? Well, I can use Magic Mind. Today's content is sponsored by Magic Mind. Magic Mind is a natural little elixir that utilizes matcha, adaptogens, nootropics, honey, and other herbal supplements to do what coffee does, and so much more. It boosts your energy, boosts your memory, boosts your mood, and increases your focus while decreasing inflammation and boosting immunity. Magic Mind can be taken with your morning cup of coffee or with your post-lunch cup as well, just so at the very least, you only need a couple of cups of caffeine a day to feel awake for many hours and not a whole pot. Trust me, I'm not a morning person and I do work long hours most days. This was a decent alternative that really did work and as opposed to drinking far too much caffeine and you should try it yourself. Go to magicmind.co slash brokensilicon and use code brokensilicon20 to get 20% off your first order. This really does help the channel and it helps you stay focused. Help your focus in a healthy way by buying Magic Mind today. Let us move on, though, to story number two, where we have a product with three times eight gigabytes of RAM, Dan. The RTX 3090 Ti launches. Better than expected. Still not good. The write-up is as follows. On March 29th, NVIDIA, and I put in quotes, launched the RTX 3090 Ti. Let's be quick about this. It's 10% better than a 3090 in 4K. It consumes 450 to 500 watts. The coolers are massive, and it actually runs with better temps than many 3090s. And the coolers aren't very loud, despite how insanely thick they are, or because of how insanely thick they are. And finally, its MSRP was set at $2,000, not 1500 not 2400 The number of Moore's Law is dead leaked. Although in reality, this thing is selling for $2,200 plus and expected to hit $2,500 to $4,000 for a while. 
Indeed, one thing to note is that there seems to be very little availability in the U.S. and literally no availability in many other regions, according to Moore's Law Z sources. Furthermore, it seems that there is a founder's edition, once again exclusive to the U.S. Best Buy, and Moore's Law Z is told that this is also absurdly low volume probably only existing because of some line in an old contract somewhere that says that Best Buy has to get some reference version of every model they make. That's an entirely new SKU. Oh, and also the fact that it has an MSRP at all, that's a good sign for this market and likely means that the RDNA 2 refreshes dropping in a month will undoubtedly have an MSRP. These are the cards, of course, that the 3090 Ti was preemptively launched. So the 6950 XT is competition in the charts. All right. What do you think about the 3090 Ti, Dan? Not too much. It's a little stronger than the 3090. It's mm-hmm. a little... It's nominally 30% more expensive. I, we'll see how well the MSRP holds. It looks like, uh, based on Newegg, even though everything's out of stock, everything's still listed around MSRP, so we'll see how that holds three weeks from now. The existence of an MSRP, I guess, like you say, is good. I There was some speculation that or some hope that maybe it would be end up being $1,500 but that clearly didn't happen (laughs) you know if it were $1,500 I would say clearly the market's moving in a better direction if the with this I say it's probably moving in a better direction but it's still a ridiculously priced card I mean the one thing I will say that's impressing me a little bit and I do have to point out this is one of those things where as much as I get annoyed when people say this in the comments it does matter what region you're in. I mean everyone I've talked to outside of the US is like this thing just does not exist whereas it seems like there's an okay amount how should I put this? There's enough of them for what people want in the US. Like I go to Newegg there's one for $2100 on Newegg right now. So I mean that's a little surprising in some ways but I don't think they're making many of these, so I maintain that. I, I really just think what you're also seeing is no one wants it. Yeah, I I don't know who it's for. I mean, I guess it's for the people that bought a 3090 and they're going to buy the strongest card out after it, no matter or what. Or if they were waiting to get a strong card and it's like, well, this is cheaper than those $3,000 3090s were a month ago. I, I guess there might be some people. I, I can't imagine you get a person who's buying a 3090 ti isn't already at high to enthusiast here performance though you don't you, you don't you don't think there's a large amount of people who like well, having, i guess it's time to go upgrade from my 970 <laughs> yeah to my 970 to a 3090 ti that uses quadruple the power yeah probably not i guess good point. and you have to like saw apart your case to fit it in the in because it's 14 inches long i guess mm-hmm. something that i've done with a previous case of like five years ago if you remember <laughs> Yeah, you did do that one. Hot tip. If you want to saw pieces of metal or plastic off of a case, bread knives work really well. <laughs> Can't recommend the bread knife enough. Bread knives are underrated. Yeah. You know? they're. I mean, in general, they're just underrated, which I think it's about time we do a bread knife podcast, Dan. Yeah, I think that's where we go after we end uh, Broken Silicon. Yep. It's all which about this bread is knives. the last episode of Broken Silicon, all bread knives from now on. Yep. I mean, that is the name of the podcast, All Bread Knives from Now On. <laughs> no, but I mean, do you have anything else to say about the 3090 Ti? This is something that could not stop popping up every other news episode for like half a year. And I, don't, I mean, I don't know that I have that much else to say. I think some people 
actually downplayed how in quotes good it would be. Like they're like, it's gonna be three percent better, it's gonna, you know, be too hot. It's like, no, you just have like four slot coolers. It's actually works fine and it's not the worst pricing, but it's still yeah. I I mean you're paying a well, I guess the street price really have nothing's caught up to the insane runaway pricing of thir- the 3090 itself. So there's a, you could probably get this for cheaper right now as long as that tw- uh, $2,100 uh, 3090 Ti still remains available on Newegg. So, but it's like, what, 6% stronger than a 3090? For... It's like 10%, I'd say. Okay. So I guess it's more pa- it's an increase in power enough where you can actually say it's kind of a different level of performance so that's well, good and, and i think it's worth pointing out that this is probably going to somewhat replace the 3090 and the 3090 12 gigabyte is what they're going to just be rolling out from now on below that which is a little weaker than the 3080 ti which is a little weaker than the 3090 which means they may have like a 15 percent gap or more between or 15 to 20% gap now between 3080 12 gigabyte and 3090 Ti. So there's kind of a tiered thing going on. Yeah. It's better than being a completely pointless product, I guess. Yeah. I can't say much more than that. I I, I do like the, um, I always love when a new strongest card comes out. It's like the strongest card is now available. And it's like, yeah, this happens every year and a half to two years. This isn't like that groundbreaking or unprecedented of an event. Oh yeah, I know. Well, especially when you've had the newest card, the strongest card come out three times this generation or whatever. Yeah. Uh, QH Freddy writes him, could NVIDIA have just been waiting to release the 3090 Ti for the new ATX power supply spec, that 12 plus four power connector, before putting the 3090 Ti on the market? Uh, I don't think so. I think there is something to point out here that this uses the fully fledged newest gen power spec, whereas... Basically, what Ampere used was a dumb version of it, probably to allow NVIDIA engineers to practice with this type of connector and stuff. And in some ways, the 3090 Ti is actually, in some ways, practice for preparing for the insanity that's going to happen with Lovelace, I would argue. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's... But I don't think they held the release for that. Probably not, no. I mean, my understanding is EVGA had working cards because of how over-engineered it was months ago. It's just overall they needed to do a redesign because of just a a flurry of issues having to do with power and uh, like the RAM. Uh, There's a a bunch of issues. I don't think it was just that, but it is is notable that now there's a 12 plus 4 pin, and that plus 4 allows, I believe, more crosstalk between the card and the power supply to better regulate voltage. Oh, okay. Um, Jensen Wang, NVIDIA CEO, writes in, he says, do you think the larger VRAM amounts on GPUs, making the cost to double VRAM much higher, may result in GPU vendors choosing to make wider memory buses than necessary in the future to enable a lower bomb without blowing the pricing out of the water? In other words, if you look at Navi 33 with its presumably 128-bit bus, as you keep saying, having 8 gigabytes, maybe instead of designing with a 120, a 192-bit bus to enable a 12-gigabyte model for 50 bucks more or something versus $100 for 16-gigabyte models, or with the increase in MSRP ceiling, do you think the models may become separated far enough to enable $100 plus MSRP differences on the same level of GPU performance? Um, You know, I think there's already people doing this. You already see... I think AMD is putting a lot of thought 
already into how they've segmented memory of the RDNA 2 lineup, the RDNA 3 lineup. You have these bizarre situations like the 6500 XT, but also 6500 XT wasn't even really going to exist in the way that it did. <laughs> it just ended well, up because the yeah. market allowed it. There's it's a, a lot of top card. <laughs> yeah, there's still a lot of thought put into the amount of memory on each of those dies. And I mean, today we're about to get to it. Alchemist uh, SOC2, the smaller die of the Alchemist lineup, has a 96-bit bus, and like most of the volume will probably be 64-bit, but they're like, yeah, let's use 10 millimeters squared to make sure we can have variants when we need to that have a boost in performance mm -hmm. and memory. And I, what I would say is I think they're already doing this. And I think, again, all this hullabaloo, it won't go away, and I I think it's interesting to discuss, so I understand, but all this hullabaloo of, like, the Navi 33 being 128, but with 8 gigabytes, I just don't know why people don't get this through their heads. It's not a high-end card. It's Navi 33. Navi 23 had 8 gigabytes. I know it might be as strong as a 6900 XT and 1440p, and gasp, 8 gigabytes is enough for 1440p. Just because it's as strong as a 6900 XT does not mean that it needs to have 16 gigabytes. Navi 21 was a high-end card, meant to last a long time at 4K, and then games get harder to run. You don't need more RAM. You need more grunt. And I mean, it's like, the did, did the 2060 have enough RAM at 6 gigabytes? I wouldn't say it had more than enough, but it had enough. And, you know, it was the same performance as... Uh, I mean, what, I think a 1080 or something? I think so. Mm. And that had 8 gigabytes. Or look at the 1060. I think 6 gigabytes was enough for the 1060, despite the Polaris sell. It's, I, I think over time we found the 1060 really hasn't aged that badly. And what was its performance? I mean, the equivalent of, I believe, a 980, which was, I mean, if we go back, certainly stronger than the first Titan that had 6 gigabytes, you know. And so does just every card has to have more than that? I, mean, I don't think so. Uh, especially because... Uh... Like, if you're getting a Navi 33 graphics card next year if, to play in 1440p or something, you you don't have to have maximum resolutions to maximize 1440p. You At 1440p, you might not be able to tell the difference between medium and high ultra settings in a lot of games at 1440p. Like, mm -hmm. And now you can just run it 200 hertz or something insane with this card. Yeah, and and that's fine. I, I and you can probably even push some games to 4K still with resolution scaling. Yeah, Carbon Cry writes in. And he says my perspective on the eight gigabyte RDNA three mid range discussion is that I think eight gigabytes is enough for the performance here. Honestly, especially within an abundance of compute, we should see future games trade compute enhancements of say textures over just sprawling out into memory. Especially for AMD six with eight gigabytes in the mid range. Current expectations of devs is not more than eight gigabytes. If that does not significantly change, but compute becomes cheaper, that's what devs will use to improve graphics first. Besides, my Supernova Vega fifty six still has eight gigabytes. Are you telling me this holy gpu would be have become obsolete i don't think so yeah i mean the vega 56 definitely isn't obsolete tom i mean you might say it's obsolescent you would not choose it over anything we have now <laughs> not that it's obsolete um and you guys got to stop complaining about the eight gigabytes just save your energy for it having fu eight fucking pcie lanes again swifty writes in <laughs> Alcon, is it time to cash out the 3080 Space Heater Edition for a backup 3060 Ti? 
maybe sell both and survive off a 1060 laptop? I wanted to go AMD this gen, but the EVGA notify system took little effort. I say maybe. I may actually, from a sponsor, have a... I already have a GTX 3050 behind me to compare to a 16, my 6500 XTM testing. But I may have another 3050 on the way from a sponsor, and I may sell my 3070 and just make do with a 3050, which is about, you know, desktop 3050s, somewhat close to my laptop's 2060 Max-Q that I've mm-hmm. overclocked to almost be as strong as a desktop 2060. You know, it's 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 fine. I use my laptop all the time to play Age of Empires 4, Deep Rock Galactic. Um, sometimes I'll even just, instead of going up into the office where my desktop is, you know I'll just plug an HDMI to my laptop and play Battlefield 2042 and like 1080p 100 instead of going upstairs. I just don't care. I just want to sit on the couch. And, and so I think I could slum it with that level of performance with a 3050. Not that I pay $400 for a 3050. I got it from a sponsor. Uh, for a while, just waiting for RDNA 3 and Lovelace. And I think this is a real question a lot of people need to consider. And, you know, especially people like me who have a console and a PC. We've just been playing Elden Ring and Far Cry 6 on PS5 a lot, too, anyways, uh, uh, for PS5. So I, I think it's something I'm definitely considering. And I think if you can sell a card for $1,000 and you have, like, a $300, $400 card that's good enough... Then yeah, I mean we're getting into a similar situation before Ampere launched. It's just remember, don't sell your card unless you already have one to use. Yeah. And <laughs> understand that it might not be easy to get the exact card you want at a new product launch that you do need to jump on it. I can't believe how many people said I was right for 6 months and then all of a sudden magically wrong for a year and then now I'm right again when it comes to that video I did saying sell your 2080 Ti. For the record, you should have always Sold your 2080 Ti, even at double MSRP, $900. The 6700 XT was available for that price. And a 12 gigabyte 2080 Ti, you could have sold and made money. I I mean, I just, I I really can't imagine, like, not deciding to take a moderate, a a modest, or, I mean, to a 3060 Ti from a 3080 is a big decrease in performance. Mm -hmm. But you can play any game on a 3060 Ti that you can on a 3080. You have to lower settings. And I can't imagine not almost not making that choice if it's available to me. If I can sell a 3080 for what, like probably a thousand, a thousand bucks, bucks right probably, now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you could use the thousand bucks, go for it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And I think this is a real now's the month to make the decision. I think this is a real thing everyone's got to start thinking about. You know, if you find a 3058 gigabyte for 300 bucks, okay, you can slum it with oh. that. Sell your 3090, dude. Make thousands of dollars. And I'm not making a proclamation about this, but like, it's not typical that PC parts are uh, assets. So no, they're not supposed to be. <laughs> Even if this becomes more of the norm and more cyclical, there are still going to be drops in the future. You should not always assume your GPU will be worth more. Yeah. Um, so there's going to be a point, I think, where at least where these the, one day your 3080 might be worth. $1,200 and then a month later it's worth like 800 again. Mm-hmm. And if, if it's, if it's not worth the hassle to you, I totally get it, dude, but yeah. it might be for a lot of people I saw in the comments and on our discord go about a year ago, I'm tired of waking. I bought a 6,700 XT for a thousand dollars. That money matters to you sell it. Cause in fact, actually, you know, on that note, I believe this will come out on a Thursday when AMD typically drops their, 
volume of, you know, reference cards on their website at MSRP. I believe last week the 6700 XT was in stock on their website for about an hour. So, mm. yeah, it's it's happening, guys. There's decisions to be made here. Zeno764 writes in, Hi, Tom and Dan. With entry-level graphics cards seemingly disappearing in the near future and the power consumption of graphics cards going up even in the new, quote-unquote, low-end section, do you think there is room for an APU with a higher TDP and more of that power budget spent on the integrated graphics portion that could step into this void? Or do you think Intel and AMD will just continue to make the type of APUs they keep making now with an iGPU barely ever sipping more than 15 watts by itself? I say eventually, absolutely, they will. But what everyone needs to remember is it's going to need to be used for a specific laptop niche. Do-it-yourself gaming is a, is a niche that isn't worth making a gaming APU for. There's going to have to be some reason they made it for laptop that also is brought to desktop and then overclocked like crazy. That's what I think. Yeah, and I, I even think um, their, their most re- recent releases are starting to get close to that, so... Yeah, I think it's uh, just a matter of time before something like this comes out. And I think what do we got coming? Yeah, I think we have Raphael H, which is like the 16-core desktop, I mean, laptop version of their, yeah, 16-core Zen 4 uh, with like a, a tiny four-compute unit integrated graphics, but meant to be paired with a, a, a discrete GPU. And then they'll have Phoenix, which I don't remember the specs. I honestly haven't paid enough attention to that, considering it's probably coming in under a year. Um that will be their Zen 4 APU, to my knowledge. I don't know if it has more than 12 compute units or not. I don't remember if it was 12 or 16 or something like that. But that's still kind of just replacing the standard of what they have now. And the question will be, will there be an in-between or something? Will there be a 6-core Zen 4 with like a 24-compute unit GPU? I don't know yet. I still don't know that's what they're going to decide to do. But it'd take that, and they made it... See, Apple makes their own APUs now, so that's the target market for that in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, the person who would want this now is probably Microsoft Surface. The thing is, Surface keeps screwing over AMD, by the way, guys. Like, AMD keeps designing APUs for Surface that keep not being used. Like, they have that one 12 nanometer one. God, what was it? I want to say it was like the 2 or 3, uh, 3780U or something. It was like that a little more customized version of their 11 or 12 compute unit, 12 nanometer Zen plus APU, I believe. And then Intel just launched golden samples of ice like next to it. And that pissed off AMD because AMD thought they were going to get the exclusive flagship surface. And then I, my understanding is Van Gogh was also kind of meant to be a surface killer (laughs) and then also didn't get used by Microsoft. This just keeps happening. So I don't know if, in other words, if Apple's making their own APUs and Microsoft keeps screwing over AMD, I don't know who the customer is that makes them make this. It, but that's what I think needs mm. to happen. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. All right, let us move on then to story number three. FSR 2.0 detailed. All right, here's the write-up. On March 23rd, AMD gave PC gamers a peek under their DLSS 2.3 competitor's hood. In summary... FSR 2.0 is generally much more closely related to how DLSS 2.0 works than how FSR 1.0 works. Screenshots and videos shown by AMD so far suggest this really could be a direct competitor to DLSS with impressive results seen compared to even the latest DLSS performance. And unlike DLSS, FSR 2.0 remains open source and does not require machine learning hardware. 
FSR 2.0 does, though, require much more work to implement into a game's engine than FSR 1.0, based on what we can tell and based on, of course, my discussions with developers. You know, Brian Heemskirk was one that was on the last Broken Silicon, although it does still seem much easier to implement than DLSS. So most likely, RSR will slowly grow as an FSR 1.0 evolving branch for easy implementation into as many games as possible. That's what FSR 1.0's tech will be used for. And FSR 2.0 is unlikely to ever really be added to RSR, more so taking longer to implement and being used in the latest games as a direct DLSS competitor. FSR 2.0 launches quarter two, 2022. All right. Do you have any thoughts on FSR 2.0, Dan? You know, I think it's interesting. Like, it's just a kind of a complete... It sounds to me like it's a complete reworking of FSR. Like, Mm -hmm. it's not even... From what I can tell, that all based on FSR 1.0 at all, correct? Barely. Yeah, it's it's an entirely different thing, yeah. Which, yeah, to me sounds like they probably won't be able to implement an RSR-like feature with it, even though, in my opinion so far, I have not been demonstrated that RSR is even a feature. But mm-hmm. that <laughs> we'll see how that uh, gets better with later iterations. I'm sure it will. Um Listen to the last die shrink if people want to know what we're talking about, but go on. To me, this sounds like they're taking FSR seriously. The fact that they're kind of completely reworking it. FSR 1.0 to me isn't necessarily a failure, but I don't think it was a a big victory for AMD. Mm. I I don't think FSR 1.0 turned out to be what that we were hoping it would be. It so. wasn't like the market dominating force yeah. that I think some people thought it might be. And, you know, again, I can't recommend the last broken silicon enough doing very well in the numbers. But if you haven't listened to it, I know some people skip the guest episodes. Brian and me were talking and it became very clear that one of the reasons, and I did point this out, I did my work ahead of time. Yes, FSR is gaining more support in an aligned perspective compared to DLSS. DLSS had like no support when it came out. Eventually it had like five or something games in its first year. Its first two years, it had like 40 games. But since FSR has come out, it's gained 100. It's been like, like it, what, I forgot what it's at. It's like 80 games or something that support it. Mm-hmm. In that one-year period where FSR has gone from 0 to 80, DLSS has gone from 40 to 150. Meaning, yes, FSR is gaining support faster in an aligned sense, but DLSS added more DLSS games in FSR's first year than FSR added themselves. So I don't think there's this argument that FSR has more support. As far as we can tell, DLSS is going to keep more support, more prevalent support. And one of the main reasons I think that emerged in the last Broken Silicon for why that probably is, is actually something that worked against FSR. It's easy to implement, but it's added at the end of the game. And once a game's done, developers don't want to add a bunch of lines of code that could break the game. And if yeah. you force them to program it from the beginning, like DLSS does, they're actually maybe more likely to adopt it. Yeah. And, you know, just looking at screenshot comparisons that, you know, AMD mm. has put out, it looks like it's closer to being completely lossless than kind of a compromise that FSR 1.0 was where, there's it's a little blurrier than native resolution. So if it gets implemented more widely than FSR 1.0, it, I think it's a legitimate competitor to DLSS because, and I know they're different, but FSR 1.0 just doesn't 
hold a candle to what they uh, Nvidia has done with DLSS in the past year. No, I, I I don't I don't think so. It, it just isn't quite there yet. You know, competition begets more competition. With FSR comes out all of a sudden, Nvidia's making sure it's in every single new release and that it works perfectly. Yeah. And at the same time, though, AMD is innovating and they have something that I think has, from what I'm hearing, it is scaring NVIDIA, even if NVIDIA is keeping pace, is what I would say. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm very excited to see it, honestly. And I just want it, I want us to get to a world where every game is FSR 2.0, every game is DLSS and XE Super Sampling, because it, I mean, look, in Battlefield 2042, I'm able to game in 4K 100 with a 3070. That's nice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, let us move on, though. I just mentioned it a little bit to story number four. Intel's XE Super Sampling Detailed. All right. And I've got kind of a tweet right up here combining things from video cards in a WCCF tech article. In a series of GDC 2022 talks, the company Intel outlined the challenges temporal upscaling technologies are facing, the requirements to make them as broadly supported as possible, and the performance uplift benefits for end users. Specifically, Intel engineers mentioned that upscaling and anti-aliasing should be treated as a single problem. There's a mountain of data, enough data, and the final picture should take all of it into account for the final image, not just one thing or another, depending on which type of upscaling tech you're using in a given game. Older games and older GPUs may see better results and quicker implementation with spatial upscalers, but newer games that support ray tracing and other graphics-intensive technologies will undoubtedly see better performance in visuals with temporal upscalers. The company reaffirmed that all GPUs with support for shader model 6.4 plus DP4A instructions will support the technology. Still, XE Super Sampling will work best with their own ARC and other graphics architectures with matrix extension acceleration support, a big feature being tooted about Z. Game developers should not worry, though, as XE Super Sampling will have a single API and use of either XMX or DP4A models will be managed internally. Unlike AMD's FSR 2.0 and NVIDIA's DLSS 2.3, Intel XE Super Sampling will feature five image quality modes, including ultra quality mode, with a 1.3x scaling factor. The scaling factor is not available with DLSS and FSR. Intel claims that their technology can achieve higher scaling ratios than other temporal and spatial upscaling technologies. The ultra quality mode will improve performance by 21 to 27% for 1440p and 4K resolutions, respectively, while ultra performance mode will offer 97 to 153% better frame rates for both of those resolutions as well. Those numbers are based on the Renz demo powered by an Arc Alchemist GPU running at fixed, undisclosed frequencies recently. All right, Dan, what did you see about XE Super Sampling? I mean, anything I didn't cover there that impressed you or that you think is noteworthy? No, I don't think so. I mean, it sounds to me like that. I can't remember exactly. I think it was that presser they put out where they said that they're using several different sources of uh, data to compile Mm -hmm. the best image they can, which is interesting and i'm curious to see how that works out i mean my thing is always like with these there these were we still only have like press Mm -hmm. (laughs) or desired press images from them so far so there's not that much to go off of like the demo i watched today i thought they the way they presented it was kind of odd like presenting their z super sampling next to 1080p and mm. then not having a frame rate next to it. So I 
it was kind of hard to compare what they were trying to show me. I mean, I think the takeaway they're trying to say is you get 1080p performance with 4K image quality. Like the image is obviously better looking, but Intel does seem to be with all of their demos and press releases for XE super sampling so far, focusing on the quality more so than the performance increase. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they're touting like though, uh, almost what 2.5 X, uh, increase in performance in the ultra performance mode which I'm curious to see how that will look. But yeah, that's pretty I mean, substantial. Again, though, for this, for look, I'm seeing a lot of big buzzwords. I'm seeing a lot of cool numbers and names and flashy little videos. And it seems like it has maybe the most potential to be a killer feature out of everything else I've seen in that it seems to have the super tightly programmed, accelerated specifically by their own architecture qualities of DLSS and the open standards and easy implementation, supposedly, of FSR. So hopefully it gets wide adoption in every game by devs. But until then, we see it actually used on an Alchemist card, I don't know how much I have to say. At the end of the day, it's all buzzwords. Does it look as good as 4K when I actually try it? Does it actually give me a big performance boost? Does it not have tons of artifacts? all i want to mm -hmm. know and we just you know it's all marketing so far yeah and, and given that it's an open uh source i i'm not remembering um mm -hmm. where uh z uh, z ss should theoretically uh work on but i think it will be also be really interesting to see how it performs on you know amd graphics cards <laughs> yes well aiden fs writes in it says hey tom and then in parentheses and dan Kind of strange that the Arc Limited Edition card render they showed off today is missing the external power connectors. Are they really trying to hide the power usage of the top desktop cards at this point? Are they deciding whether to use the PCIe 5 connector or not? Obviously not using all 600 watts. And then, you know, KH Freddy also writes in and says, Do you think Intel's regretting the quarter one 2022 promise they made? Aiden, I don't know that they're specifically trying to hide that, but I think they're still hiding things. And QH Freddy, yeah. I think they regret announcing quarter one. All of this leads into story number five. Story number five, Intel Alchemist revealed dot, 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 kinda. On March 30th, Intel fully detailed their A370M GPU. This is the mobility 64-bit version of, in quotes, SOC2, aimed to compete with the RTX 2050, presumably, and 1650-type cards, and the 35 to 50-watt sector of discrete laptop GPUs, and is based on the limited data provided. Yeah, it may be about as strong as a desktop 1650 in laptops, and the 96-bit desktop version could beat the 1650 Super at 75 watts. Additionally, worth mentioning, Arc indeed seems to have very impressive AI and encoding capabilities. The software stack seems to be fully featured, although it looks a little too simple to be finished in this uh, speaker's opinion. While the laptop variant of SoC2 is launching in April, the desktop version is still unlikely to be seen right away, as far as we can tell. In fact, early summer is quoted for the desktop launches, with, in quotes, summer being stated for a special edition of the high-end desktop. To me, suggesting that full high-end DG2 may not actually be available till late quarter three or even quarter four. So in summary... Moore's Law Z feels Intel has revealed enough to back up early performance leaks. Check out Moore's Law Z's video that came out a day before this podcast. But something still seems off. These cards don't really feel like they are launching a desktop for a few months. Damn, 
What did you think? I mean, it was a I, I, it was a slick video, but there were some red flags that popped out real quick. Like I was writing down early summer in big letters on a piece of paper. Well, that I mean, early summer that probably means July. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um yeah, their their arc reveal of of course the day highlight laptop first and I guess we now kind of know what their laptop GPU looks like. We still don't really know that much about, or we don't know really any details beyond what we knew previously about their desktop cards, except for what it looks like, I guess, which I don't know. It's a good design. (laughs) I I mean, I think the design looks good. We'll see how it looks when it's not just a render. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, the fact that their big reveal for the desktop cards is a single render without any details suggests that this is not coming out for a couple months at least or few months at least yeah i mean i'm trying to think of other red flags um i looked through the per the frame rate data that they showed and as i thought they might they did not compare it to competitors graphics cards i will Mm -hmm. be blown away because intel hates doing that acknowledging their competitors i'm just gonna laugh so hard if they're like (laughs) a780 five times stronger than integrated graphics. It's like, guys, compare it to the 3070. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah. <laughs> as far as I can tell, there are a lot of people asking me questions in the Discord. Well, do you think the chart starts at zero? And I saw Hitman, 1080p medium settings, getting 40 frames on the strongest integrated graphics with 96 execution units. Yeah, I think I think that's legitimate. That 40 mm-hmm. frames seems about right for that, I think. And Hitman 3, that's a very efficiently run game. Um, so I don't, I think their charts seem accurate. I don't see any funny business going on yet. And based on that, I think it seems like, yes, the 128 execution unit model is up to double the performance of the 96 integrated, but on average, it seems to be more like 40 to 60% stronger, which places the mobile version at 1650 performance, which if you can get that, that's a lot better than 1650 max Q. You know, yeah. it's like 40% yeah. better. And I think the desktop version, which should have at least 50% more bandwidth and about 50% higher clocks, should get you something that's pretty close to a 590. And I think the data is there. You know, that's what the video I put out today, while we're, you know, before, before we recorded this, really highlighted is, is the numbers they're showing now, do they back up what's been leaked for over a year now about performance? And they do. They do. I think the desktop card can be like a 150 to a $200 card. Six gigabytes, that's like a 590 that uses maybe a third of the energy of a 590. That's cool. I think that if you extrapolate it up, assume decent scaling, we're looking at something at least as strong as a 3060 Ti, maybe up to a 3070 Ti. We'll just have to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the I keep saying this. The numbers are there to support a 3070 competitor. They're there. There's still nothing popping up that shows the performance can't be hit. It just seems like it's obvious that it's like low-end laptop launches, then maybe low-end desktop, then early summer we'll get high-end laptop, then high-end desktop. It just seems like they're really stalling to get the top performance model out. And I think it has to be because, remember, they've been making drivers for a 96 execution unit model for a while. Getting to 128 is doable. I just think more performance pitfalls are popping up that need more optimization the higher they try to scale the drivers with the stronger cards, and they're just stalling for time here. Yeah, I, I mean, that's the issue with jumping the gun. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, they announced it probably, they announced ARC 
probably too early. You know, maybe it's a the year after that... I had pictures of it. True. That's just how ridiculous this is. Sorry, go on. <laughs> but uh, I mean, uh, when I say they released it, too, they showed it off too early. I mm-hmm. mean, like, look at what it what's happened. It's been almost a year that we've been talking about when will art come out, and the problem with when you release stuff too early. I mean, you announce stuff too early is you have to keep reminding people of it permanently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, let me see here. Timo writes in. He says, hi, considering DG2 driver issues, is there a possibility Intel decides they just got to ship this thing no matter what with AMD and NVIDIA's new gens getting pushed out in quarter three? If that 4 million number produced cards are sitting somewhere in warehouses soon, they are right now, to my understanding, to be honest. And Battle Mage coming in less than a year, common sense would say to just push DG2 out to market sooner rather than later. Customers are just going to have to decide at some point. And I think the answer is yes. And I think they're literally pushing it up to the line where they just have to launch it. Yeah. Which is are. like what? Yeah. A month before the competition. They That's the latest. They can wait. I, I mean, I, I think this would be a different story if this was coming out in April or this or had already been came out because, all right, now they have like four or five months before we really start seeing what the RDNA uh, 3 and Lovelace will be. And now it's just like by the time this comes out, we might basically just know <laughs> what those are. Yeah, it's oh, for sure. I think so. I think, yeah, by the time it, I mean, it says summer. So July at the earliest, I think, you know, <laughs> I think. I think by then, for sure, I'm going to have my RDNA 3 lineup out, Leak. Yeah. Uh, unless uh, they are actually taking the word early summer seriously, and it comes out like the last week of June. which. But Dan, know, they, based... they say early summer for the ARC 5 and ARC 7 tiers, and then they say summer for special yeah. edition. So I, I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing is, my, my assumption whenever the, a company says, a time period is that it's going to be at the absolute last day it could be in that time period. So if you say early summer, what, what's the last day we can call early summer? Pro- mm-hmm. July 20th? Like, <laughs> You know that meme of like Spider-Man pointing at the same thing over and over and it just mm-hmm. like says a different thing? I'm just thinking of like if someone could make a meme of Intel being Spider-Man pointing around and going quarter one and calling the same thing Different, like different quarters, quarter one over and over. Quarter one, quarter one, 2022 uh, verse and uh, actually means quarter, quarter three, late quarter three. Yeah. <laughs> 2022. Um, Bullethead writes in, hey, Tom and Dan, just want to know, now that Intel is finally talking about ARC, are we still on track to get low and discrete DG2 first? Are your sources feeling confident that Intel is a solid, locked-in plan? Or is there still some uncertainty in the air about the discrete rollout? Well, there's a certainty about, like, the laptop 128. That thing's been locked in for months. I think I've been pretty clear. No, that really is coming out April. Um, so that's locked in. In terms of everything else, no, I, there's still some up in the air about exactly when each desktop model's coming out, I would say. Um with, I guess, most people saying there's no way it's after June. But when I look at today's presentation, I go, I don't know. <laughs> in fact, I put in, t- I, re- I think I told you this, Dan, a while ago, but I failed to leak it because I just didn't feel confident in it quite yet. But the name of that Intel Arc 
launch time frame video from February, the folders named Arc Launches Quarter 4. <laughs> and I didn't name the video that or really highlight that. And that came from a, a thing I got from one of my best sources that said, the cheaper reference model, not the special edition, may not be out till quarter four, and the AIB model may actually launch first. Now, when I look at today's video, I go, well, shit, that source may have been right. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, a special edition is launching quarter three. Does that mean the normal edition is launching quarter four, like that source said? Because I can't help but go, good Lord, maybe it's plausible. I, I'm not saying that it's going to happen, guys. I'm just, I'm letting you in on one whisper I heard from one of my best sources just because I think it's hilarious. It actually feels plausible now. I mean, and if, if that's the case, it's like this discussion of whether in their first attempt, uh, do we really think they're going to get to high end performance is so trite? Like, because we're talking about high, what would you call the 3070? High mid range or low high end? Right. Yeah, sure. Somewhere around there. I'd say upper mid range at this point. It's been out for almost two years. Yeah. So at a certain point, we're saying, yeah, it's going to be this power. Their top level GPU might be a little stronger than a high mid range card from two years ago. Like that's not that's not that big of an achievement. (laughs) No, the only achievement is that they managed to make it at all, whereas no other competitor seems to be able to. And if they can uh, actually serve the low-end market or what's become the low-end market and release a card for $150 or something like that, that would be great. And I think a card like that is needed in the market. But at the high end, what they are going to end up having at their their highest-end card this first time around is probably going to amount to what? Like a 40, whatever the 4060s level of performance turns out to be? I was going to say, way ahead of you here, I opened up my Lovelace leak, <laughs> and I'm looking at the slide right now. I see AD106, likely the RTX 4050 Ti. It's a 128-bit card with 4,600 CUDA cores, and I think it'll be between RTX 2080 Super and 2080 Ti rasterization performance with ray tracing probably or a little bit above a 3070. So yes, I think NVIDIA may have a $300 card that is startlingly close to the performance of top alchemist no no one of 16 gigabytes guys because now it's low end now it's gonna be eight you just have to deal with that but mm-hmm. at the same time it's like yeah they may have an eight gigabyte version of alchemist for 300 dollars, and so that just tells you i think i think intel needs to make their high-end 16 gigabyte card 400 out of the gate yeah i, I just do I think it's been too late. And, and again, remember, I have sources telling me they're willing to buy market share, so they might. Annual Chief writes in. He says, no HDMI 2.1. Alchemist only has 2.0B. And on A3 Mobile, how does that bode for the A5M and A7M? What about desktop parts? Um, I mean, that was another red flag for me. It doesn't have HDMI 2.1, and it might be DisplayPort 2.0 ready. So look at DisplayPort 2.0. Seems to be capable of 4K 240. Excited for that. But maybe. And it's like, how many times are we going to say this? It seems obvious to me. This has some IP that was designed years ago. And this card was supposed to come out one year ago. So that right there almost makes it not an option for me. I have a 4K 120 display. You have a 4K 120 display. My my TV downstairs supports 4K 120 via HDMI. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess we'll see. 
this could be a cost-cutting thing because it's not like that a th the A370M is going to push 4K sure. 120 hertz very well. So maybe they are, and I doubt it's going to be paired with any laptops that have a, well, this is an HDMI output, but I doubt it's going to co come with any displays that are 4K 120 hertz on laptops. So hopefully it's just a cost thing. Oh, I bet thing. it does. That's becoming not that crazy. <laughs> hopefully this is just some cost cutting thing because you're not going to be able to perform use this card for 4k 120 hertz gaming i mean i'm saying like this doesn't necessarily mean that the a7 mobiles are, the a700 mobile series isn't going to have 2.1 i don't think well i mean and it, again it has display port so i know my laptop mm -hmm. with a turing 2060 it's USB-C out does 4k 144 hertz so I assume it can do that, but the fact that it's HDMI port itself might not support 4K 120 seems really annoying. And again, me screams is a graphics card that's supposed to come out a very long time ago. Yeah. Melodic Warrior writes in, after seeing the initial launch announcement of ARC, I'm starting to be a bit more hopeful for a successful launch of new graphics. That said, I could not help but notice the support for video codecs they will have out of the gate. My question is, how well do you think the AV1 support from Intel will stack up against NVIDIA and Radeon support? From where I'm sitting, it looks like they have a built-in accelerator that will work great for professionals. With semi-professionals, the software support is going to be limited to a degree. That said, at the end of the day, I'm of the opinion it made NVIDIA look a bit silly because they beat them in AV1 encoding support first. Also, what do you think of Intel's Deep Link? I mean, I think all of this looks impressive, honestly. Mm -hmm. I think the encoding performance and AI upscaling stuff I saw looked really cool. Yeah, I guess we forgot to bring that up. That was a very legitimately impressive part of that presentation. Um, it, <laughs> how they're almost able to seemingly add information to old videos is, and not have it be artifacty as hell is interesting. Although... We'll see if uh, the not being artifacty as hell thing is an actual issue or not, <laughs> because mm -hmm. they did show what, like three videos. Yeah. Well, and I mean, look, my 4K 120 hertz monitor uses DisplayPort 1.4, so that can support it. You, if if it comes out, you know, and again, but the timing is making me go. I'm probably just waiting for Lovelace or something. But if if, if it comes out in July and it can encode and render my videos like four times faster than what I have now, I will get it, even if I only keep mm -hmm. it for a few months, because that's going to be cool. We'll just have to see, but, you know, I don't have much to say to Melodic Warrior about this besides it looks impressive, and, as you know, I've been linking this the whole time, that the encoding and rendering performance has always been a planned major selling point of this lineup. Mm -hmm. I, I, I Definitely. Intel, I think, puts a lot of... Um puts a lot of work in there, like in non-gaming performance. I mean, all of them do, but I think Intel particularly emphasizes it. Well, there is one product that likes to emphasize gaming <laughs> performance quite a bit, and it is the subject of story number six. Today's video is brought to you by CDKeyOffer.com. As I put together a new benchmarking station for 2022, I know that whether it's running Windows 10 or Windows 11, I'll be getting that key from CDKeyOffer.com. And that's because it's a reliable, long-term sponsor of Moore's Law is Dead that gets you reasonable 
prices on legitimate keys for these types of products, but it's really not all that they offer. They also can give you keys for Microsoft Office, uh, keys for PlayStation codes, and even some of the latest PC releases like Elden Ring, a game that I enjoy quite a bit. Whatever you need, CD Key Offer probably has you covered. And they're always running sales, but make sure you use the best code possible. And that's the ones provided for the Moore's Law is Dead fans. Moore's Law is Dead fans get the biggest discount. And if you go to the link on screen or in the description, you can use code BROKENSILICON to get 25% off Microsoft products and Dyeshring to get 3% off everything else on the website. Using these codes really does help Moore's Law is Dead and it helps you play reasonable prices for games that you want in keys that frankly you just have to use half of the time. So again, use the link in the description, use Broken Silicon, use Dyeshrink depending on the products you're getting and pay reasonable prices for keys today at cdkeyoffer.com. 12th Gen Intel Core i9-12900KS launches as the world's fastest desktop processor. This week, Intel announced their new flagship i9-12900KS CPU. Its specs are as follows. Up to 5.5 GHz max turbo frequency with Intel Thermal Velocity Boost. 16 cores, 8P cores, 8 cores still, 24 threads, a 150-watt processor base power, 30 megabytes of Intel Smart Cache, and PCIe Gen 5 and 4.0 support, of course. Up to DDR5-4800 uh, megatransfers per second. Uh, chipset compatibility with existing Z690 motherboards, the latest BIOS recommended for the best gaming experience, and a $740 MSRP. Availability starting on April 5th. Indeed, there's not much to say about this chip. It uses a lot of power, but it is undoubtedly the strongest desktop chip one can buy, and it's about 20%, 30% more than the previous flagship. All this is to say, the 5950X should definitely be priced below $700 from now on when Intel's a 5.5 gigahertz gaming processor for just above $700. All right, Dan, it's official. What do you think of it? I mean, I think there's a massive um, thing they're missing with with a co-advertising deal they could, could have done, Tom. Oh, yeah? Sonic 2 comes out on April 8th. Okay. Why isn't this the 12900K Sonic edition? It's got to go fast. I wasn't sure where you were going with it, but, you know, as much as we joke, that kind of could have worked. It's just there's not a game. If there was a Sonic game coming That's out. That's true. They could have bundled the would... game with it. What, are they going to bundle the Sonic movie ticket? It's like I'm not even sure what's happening anymore. That's That's true. I mean, it was a half-baked joke that I came up with on the spot, but, yeah... If it was a game, it would have been a better deal. But, you know, co-advertising, cross-pollination, baby. That's the name of advertising. Yeah, synergy. Let's merge Sony and Heinz. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's totally logical. Let's <laughs> do corporate consolidation. No, but I don't have much to say about this. I mean, look, I, I suspect much like the 3090 Ti, people will overestimate how unwieldy it will be. It'll be much more reasonable than people expect for its power usage. But yeah, it's going to use like over 200 watts while gaming probably, but it's going to run at 5.5 gigahertz. So, Which is impressive. Yeah, it's not like before where it was like, which again, you know, we're, we're getting a little pedantic here because it's like, what really is the 5% difference in speed? But still, you know, before when it was like, I mean, what you had Rocket like trying to get to 5.2 while using 300 watts or something stupid. At least here it's 5.5 and easily the strongest processor. So I think, you know, it's not like it's $1,000. I think there will be people who definitely buy this. 
Oh yeah, and there uh, I would. I think there are people I would recommend buying this to, especially the like you point out the uh, its competitor is more expensive and weaker, which is kind of the position Intel used to be in a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Alchemist writes in. And he says, with Alder Lake and Zen 3 being relatively similar performance, why is AMD's data center chip so much better than Intel's offerings? I always thought data center chips are just scaled up versions of consumer uh, products, but clearly there's more to it. What sort of issues does Intel run into with scaling up consumer chips to data center? So it's really, I think, more of the other way around. It's the data center scaled down to consumers. Data center comes first. Mm-hmm. And when you're using chiplets, the bigger the chip, the more they benefit from chiplets, at least in terms of raw silicon you can throw into a socket. And so the smaller you get, the more monolithic doesn't have a disadvantage. In fact, it has an advantage a lot of the times. That's why AMD still is monolithic in APUs, because if you're below 200 millimeters squared, your yields are near 100% anyways. Mm -hmm. You might as well just make it monolithic, and Intel's not as much in a disadvantage anymore. We'll see what happens with Zen 4, you know? Like, if AMD pulls Rabbit out of a hat, does launch a 32-core chip or something insane, and then they're like, there, you know? But so (laughs) far, they're not doing that. They're selling the same chips they've been selling for years. So not only have they really not taken advantage of what they probably could have done if they pushed everything to the limit like they did with Zen 2 on desktop, and they're selling old chips, and Intel's, you know, got a newer lineup. Mm Mm-hmm. But I don't know if you have anything to add to that, Dan. No. All right. Well, here's something that I suspect you'll have a lot to say something about, is this was one of those other stories that dropped, you know, a day or so before we started recording. Story number seven. PlayStation Plus revamped to compete with Game Pass, launching in June. Now, here's the write-up. For months, or honestly years, there have been rumors that Sony was working on some sort of response to Game Pass. Although lately the rumors have been much more voracious, and now, as of March 29th, much more fruitful. Indeed, Sony has finally announced a new set of tiers that absorb services previously offered by their PSNOW platform of middling success. The tiers are as follows. Number one, PS Plus Essentials. This is literally just the existing service of PS Plus that offers a couple of games per month, larger discounts during sales, cloud storage, online multiplayer access, and the price hasn't changed. $60 a year, although I must highlight, I've never paid that much for it. I think I've always paid about $40 bucks per mo- for a year uh, based on deals. And then above that is PS Plus Extra, which gives you up to 400 PS4 and PS5 games from first and third party partners for $100 a year. And then PS Plus Premium a catalog of over 700 games, including PS3 games via streaming and PS2 and PSP classics. You also get streaming for seemingly the entire PS Now catalog to both PlayStation consoles and PCs and time-limited game trials. This tier costs $120 per year, seemingly just combining the cost of PS Now and PS Plus's previous yearly cost. There's also a deluxe tier as well for markets that don't have game streaming access, kind of giving you in-between PS Plus Extra and premium um, offerings while not having streaming. All of this is to be rolled out in Asia, then North America, and then other markets starting in June, with most territories aiming, in quotes, to have the service by the end of June. So I guess it's just launching in June. It's a weird way they worded that, I thought. Is this enough of an answer to Game Pass, or more accurately... Is it good enough to nullify Microsoft's Game Pass selling point? Well, we're just going to have to see. 
PlayStation Plus is, to be fair, an incredibly successful service with almost 50 million current subscribers. That's more than double the subscribers of Game Pass, and we don't know how many gold subscribers there even are. Microsoft has a lot of buzz, and Sony is definitely perceived to be behind in the services department by many in the press right now, but the numbers do not lie. Sony has a lot of PS Plus subscribers, far more than Game Pass, and it's starting to make sense why their answer seems to be to keep said subscribers from abandoning the service and upsell them on a more expensive version than really expand the user base. Whew. There's my write-up, damn. Then it turned out well. But my gut reaction overall, then, is just kind of like, meh. Not bad. It's just combining PS Now and PS Plus in a more sensical way than they had before. And I kind of just wish it was two tiers and they were more aggressive with what you get for the price. But not that much changes. It just makes more sense than what they had before. That That's my take on it right now. You know, I do think there's an interesting take that as people that own PS5s, I think I kind of initially missed, unless there's something I'm wrong about. What they're doing is they're effectively keeping PS Plus, uh, PS Plus the same with PS Plus Essentials, but they're effectively removing PS Now as an option you can buy a la carte, mm, which means true. people that stream from PC now basically need to buy PS Plus if they want to use it. So... I think that's a pretty big knock against it. Mm, yeah, I didn't think about that. That's true. Which, again, makes me go, I wish the top tier was like $90. And they just because folded some of the stuff to enhance the existing PS Plus. That would have came off as more competitive to me. Yeah, because at the end of the day, I guess they have the catalog of games that they're adding to PS Plus Extra. And so I think it's interesting... Unless uh, unless this catalog in premium expands to 700 because of the PS Now offerings or something like that. It kind of just seems like the only thing I see that really gives you any benefit over what used to exist is the PS Plus Extra where you get 400 uh, sure. titles that you can download. Which We don't even know what games those are yet, so we yeah, don't even we know. Don't. Which I think that's what they're hoping will be able to compete with uh, Game Pass, which... I mean, if that's what you buy, that it's effectively the same price as uh, Game Pass for Xbox, I think. So, well, if you pay full price, I think for Game Pass Ultimate, I believe the one twenty dollars the same price. Okay, or is so, it? Is, but, or is it still cheaper? Is it in it fifteen dollars? I don't I, know. I that's the thing is, I've never paid more than like a dollar, and I just cancel it after my free thing is done. So, but yeah, so I, I think that's what they're trying to compete with against uh, Game Pass with, and they're just folding in uh, PS Now with that. So I think you're effectively getting more value if you own a PS5, but you're kind of screwed over if you uh, don't own a PlayStation and you mm. just use the streaming service. Um, so in my opinion, I think it's a kind of retrograde move in some ways for, I, for those users but i think if you look at the numbers ps now is again middling success ps true. plus is insanely successful their answer let's upsell ps plus subscribers because the ps now ones really aren't making as much money i think that's honestly what's going on yeah that that probably is and i i think there's some value there in the ps plus uh the the middle tier but it would have been nice to see them just fold in all of that into one tier and price it at $90. But <laughs> because effectively you've just combined PS plus and PS now and right. called it the same service. 
Yeah, to me, it makes more sense. It's going to probably be enough to get any of the diehard PlayStation fans to choose this, maybe. But it doesn't seem like a direct counter to Game Pass yet. And they kind of openly say they're not going to. Yeah, there's no day and date offerings of new games, at least as far as we can tell right now. And I don't see Sony offering that. No, at least would, not for the foreseeable And future. I understand. They say it's unsustainable. And then you also look at how much money they're making off of how many... I, and again, I didn't know they had that many concurrent PS Plus subscribers. Links are in the description, guys. I was like, ah, oh, 50 million, Jesus, or double Game Pass. All right, well, I see why they just want to upsell that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's like, I understand then you can't justify financially giving away all these games for free, which I still have very big reservations about if Game Pass is at all sustainable. We're going to find out eventually. But... What they could have done, I, what if what if they do this, Dan? What if they let you buy digital versions if you have the premium model for half off? Now, Maybe. that would be interesting. It, like, But that type of a... Then you get to keep it, too. You know? Yeah. You know, so something like that. It feels like there's just a couple things that's missing. Something like that would have been cool. Like, isn't that a compromise they could have tried? I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it would be cool to see. I mean, it would be... Interesting to see a, them try to more directly compete with it, but I think Sony's trying to hold the line mm-hmm. for right now, and I'm not necessarily opposed to that at this point because I'm doubtful of the sustainability of Game Pass, and if both major competitors start doing that, move to a subscription model, well, we might just be left with both companies losing a ton of money and a more you know a ton of studio closures which i don't want to see yeah well this is something i'm going to talk about in much more detail with the next guest nx gamer so look forward you're a patron to those telegram requests to uh write in for our discussion points um but otherwise i guess let's move on falto ps5 series x owner writes in again he says hello tom and dan so it seems gt7 has always online drm even for single player what are your thoughts on this? And is this something we just need to get used to in all games? I personally am not a fan of this as offline solo play should have and should have no need to be connected to online. And I find it very ironic that Sony, who made fun of Microsoft for almost having always online DRM Xbox One, is allowing a first party game to do this. I have nothing to say except that it's stupid. It's stupid that like Origin, for example, makes me sign in to start a game. It's stupid that the Xbox Series X apparently makes you log in every 24 hours to play disc-based games, which makes absolutely no sense. You have a disc. It makes no sense that Sony's allowing GT7 to do this, and hopefully they'll patch it so it doesn't. Because this is so dumb, and I don't have much to say except that all this DRM shit, especially when you at least have a disc involved, makes absolutely no sense. Do I accept it? No. And I try to avoid getting games with DRM. But at the same time, it's easy for me, let's just be honest, to avoid GT7. Probably wasn't going to buy it anyways ever. So I have no dog yeah. in this fight. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I have nothing else to add. To, like, DRM is stupid. Um, I, I think there's a, what they would say, well, you made fun of Microsoft nine years ago when they did this. Um I think it's a slightly different situation because the world is just so much more connected to mm. uh, than it was 10 years ago. But I, I mean, I th- still think you should like, we should try to resist this as long as possible because 
I don't know. This just leads to more vectors of of attack on your personal information, more yeah. reduced privacy. No, I, I I just mean having everything always connected is a thing I think where it's easy to resign yourself to because it's just happening. But I, I just don't like having everything I have constantly having to be pinged online for no apparent reason. And it's just dumb. Hopefully there's a reversion from a rejection of this at some point. I agree. Yeah. It's that's, it's about all I've got to say about it is I don't like it. I don't like it when anyone does it. That's it. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Let us get to the final wrap up then, which is a very small one, but I did check last minute before we started recording. You know, I think we had, we had more stories than usual, bigger stories than usual. So it makes sense that the wrap-up's a little smaller. So uh, these are the stories that don't deserve a full discussion but are worth mentioning. So I saw that Intel may be bringing back motherboards with integrated graphics on them. Hmm. If you think about it, they used to allow NVIDIA and AMD to do that, and then they all became competitors. And now we may just see some motherboards with built-in XE graphics. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. And then we have... There was always this 170-watt Raphael Zen 4 CPU. Supposedly, it might be an insanely overclocked 16-core, according to Greymon now. Now, I was always told, in weird words, this is something different. But, okay, like, is <laughs> were there, and that's made me go, is this the 32 Zen 4C model or Zen 4D model or, or something like that? But I don't know. I think it's worth mentioning that that's still floating around, that there's a 170-watt model and a 105 watt for 12 core, but that the mm-hmm. 120 watt, which me and Xcubo Fix verified was the plan for the top 16 core, seems to maybe be drying up, which to me would suggest AMD's going all out here, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, we have TSMC 5 and 4 nanometer orders are explosive, <laughs> with TSMC warning everybody that, um, <laughs> that they are going to have trouble keeping up with 5 and 4 nanometer demand. Again, interesting they mentioned 4 nanometer all of a sudden. And that three HPC customers have already pre-booked all 3 and 2 nanometer capacity. (laughs) (laughs) Also, you know, an honorable mention here, NVIDIA Streamline. You know, I leaked some RTX 3090 Ti details like 12 hours before it came out. But I also, the first half of the video was about NVIDIA Streamline, which I don't know if you... Have you seen this, Dan? Uh, yeah. So... From what I'm told, this just looks like RTX IO all over again. Something to try to make <laughs> NVIDIA look like they have an answer back then. And it's funny, I looked it up. If you go back I forgot and, about RTX IO. If you, I mean, right? If you go back, though, and read or, or watch, like, old Ampere reveal stuff from that month in 2020, half of the shit is referencing the PS5. Like, I forgot how much they were like, no, we have SSD stuff. No, our 3060 laptop is this strong. It isn't. Um, you know, like an RTX IO just really isn't out. And I've seen some people say, but no, now it's released. Yeah. And what, what game It's not out now? Now the, now like the soft, like clearly they invented this on the spot. They finished it now and you're not going to be able to really use it in any game until Lovelace is out. And from what I'm told, that's what NVIDIA streamline is as well as some attempt to look like they have the best version of like combining XE super sampling and FSR into their own software stack. But from what I've heard, no. And in fact, that like 
what they showed, like companies may have not signed off on, and it seemed very haphazard and thrown together. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like you point out in the video, it appears to be a uh, PowerPoint slide. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, Zen 4 might get double the L2 cache per core compared to Zen 3. Don't have much to say about that, just mm -hmm. again. More evidence of how they're getting to insanely higher IPC. Yeah. So they've been showing a lot of slides lately that are just like, more cache equals more IPC, I've noticed. <laughs> uh, the That meme from uh, 2014, except now it's just more uh, cache instead of more cores. Yeah, AMD, so <laughs> AMD solution to scaling performance, and then just the googly eye guy pointing to more cache of cache. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of is what's going on. All right. Let us then move on from this very brief wrap-up section to the final reader mails. Bullethead writes in, Hey, Tom and Dan, or guest. It's Dan. And there's not a third guest yet, despite that one guy asking for it. How much of AMD's driver install update wonkiness might be due to bad default settings? I've noticed that sometimes my drivers will get messed up, and I think it might be caused by the check for update setting automatically trying to pull and install drivers in the background even when it doesn't need to on Windows. I get why this behavior exists, because not all PC users are good at keeping their drivers up to date, but I wonder if AMD actually had the resources for proper testing on that functionality. I think it's something they're getting better at, but to answer your question, yeah, I think that's what it is half the time. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I can tell you, especially when I had a bunch of mining rigs, half of the issues were some god dang Windows update that I told to not install, that just installed overnight and Worked all my servers, mining rigs, and stuff in one night. I go, wait, why is all my, why are my computers not working? Oh, there's probably a Windows update, you know. And, and I think that's a lot of it with AMD. Yeah, the, that interplay is real fun. I just like only Windows. Only Windows seems to break so many apps with an update every time. Enameled writes in and he says, "Hi, guest." Well. Tom and Dan. He says, given the recent update uptake of the Steam Deck, are you seeing a lot of time focusing on making games verified for the platform? Is it really as simple as Valve makes it out to be by a few of a, a mere few lines of code? I almost stumbled into oblivion there. I think he's referencing actually Brian Heemskirk, who was on recently. And what I would say is from discussing this with Brian on the last broken silicon, it's more than a few lines of code. Just like mm -hmm. FSR is more than a few lines of code. It does require According to Brian, who's a developer, so like days or weeks to verify everything's good, making sure it's implemented properly. Um, yeah, no, there's, it's more than just a few lines of code. I think it's very easy, you know, but I, I, mm -hmm. I think it's more than that. Mr. Sideburns writes in and he says, hi, Tom. In your RDNA3 economics video, you mentioned that AMD have got MCM working and that it has something to do with cash. Yeah. Well, I mean, working in a way that makes sense to use. I think they always kind of had prototypes. It says, could this be the cache being the interconnect or a bridge between multiple dies? Could the cache be 3D stacked across multiple dies to connect them? My answer is you will see soon enough, my friend. <laughs> but it might be more complex than people are expecting. I think a lot of early RDNA 3 leaks were just like, now there's two RDNA 2 dies. Woo. Like, real good source. Um... No, I, th I think it's more complicated than that uh, based on what I've seen. And in fact, just today I got some information they've already hinted at to you, Dan, of like, oh, God, this could be way bigger than I thought. Mm -hmm. I just hope it's not too expensive. But, we'll, but you know, again, you know, depending on what the, deform the performance is, you just go, you know, well, maybe they'll justify it. 
QH Freddy writes in, does the custom, in quotes, AMD nodes at TSMC actually mean that node logic performance is any better? Aren't there other features that could be considered custom? Maybe the MCM tweaks and such? Um, You know, that's a good point, QH. I haven't asked what is special about specific things that they say are custom. Like I've learned that the 6 nanometer node for the 6500 XT is more custom than just N6, like that they can't just easily port between N7P, which is its own custom version of N7P they're actually using for RDNA 2. Um, but I think it is a little bit of a performance thing. Like I think, oh, hmm. depending on how you define it, I think something to how they got RDNA 2 to clock so fast is custom tweaks they did to the node to allow that to happen. But outside of that, I really haven't asked enough to give you a better answer, but that is a good thing for me to start thinking about is, you know, like how much of the custom node is just them working on ways of making it work well with Vcash or 3D stacking. You know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. But, um, all right, Dan. We somehow managed to do it with an episode that is below two hours despite the insane news this week. But it's interesting. There's a lot less little things to talk about outside of the mega stories. So I guess that... I guess that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think that does it. I think that just about does it, partner. Well, well, I reckon uh, that about does it for the episode. So I'll thank you all for listening. And, uh, you know, remember that uh, we have a Patreon. We can't do this without our patrons. You'll get this early and ad-free if you support us on Patreon. Ask me and the guest questions. You can talk about this on the Discord after it comes out with me and the entire community. There's tons of other resources out there for you if you support us. We can't do this without our patrons. And, you know, tell your friends about us. Subscribe to Broken Silicon in a podcast app of your choosing. And please give us a review that boosts our ratings for, like, you know, specifically Apple Podcasts, which I know got us some notoriety outside of youtube a couple of years ago and we like rose to i believe the top 20 tech podcasts in the u.s which was crazy you know like every time that happens it's like people who don't necessarily watch a lot of youtube go oh what's this technology podcast being recommended to me so see if you can support us there otherwise i'm tired need to go to sleep another delayed episode we're planning the next episode to actually come out at the correct time which is tuesday <laughs> hope i didn't just jinx us that's the plan, and uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye. This podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law is Dead podcast videos, articles, and other media. However, I don't do this alone. Moore's Law is Dead is a team with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and special assistance by Carbon Cry. Find all of our information, including the information of sponsors you can support, at www.moreslawsdead.com. If you would like to send fan mail or hardware to us, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead at P.O. Box 60632 in Nashville, Tennessee, zip code 37206. And speaking of fans... Patrons are what makes Moore's Laws Dead content possible. The aging business model of spamming ads all over the content is dying. The future of media will be built on fans paying for the content they actually want to exist. And so if you have the extra money, but only if you do, 
please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast, Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon, Die Shrink, and Loose Ends, and of course, access to the Moore's Laws Dead Discord, full of like-minded people who would love to meet you and talk to you about computer hardware. I am one of them. Additionally, higher tiers get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the entire back catalog of Flyover State's podcasts and other projects, Moore's Laws that is done, and thanks in the credits of videos and other perks as well. And hey, if you can't afford to support us, please do share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media, Reddit, and forums. And give Broken Silicon a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your preferred podcast app. All of this really does help so much. And if you'd like to advertise on the podcast, hire Tom for consulting, or are a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its patrons supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Mellon, Anthony Gareffa, Dale Russell, Jeremy Scallon, Loophole 35, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lynn and Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Alquari, Eric Osborne, Jeff Sedler, Andre Jacques, Sarcastro, Terrence Hare, Adrita Full, Phil S, D31337, Antics, Jackson A. Miller, Jesse Jaskowiak, Josh Law, Brandon, Travis Gooding, The Canical Philosopher, Gaming Since Reagan, Batboy Deesro, Daniel Hyde, A Guy in PA81, Nathan Mose, Cole Attic, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, F7GOS, Matthew Landavazo, My Name is Nobody, Jensen N. Olethros, Jensen Wang, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchuk, Rontaro Matsukata, John Jameson, Sam Vensel, Matthew Lane, Mark Raidmaker, Jan Rauner, Chris Licata, Michael McGee, Meyer Techrants, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Growth, 3DS Boy 08, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Ross, Sandy Garrido Saunderson, Joaquin Hagen, Teak Autumn, Soul Connor, Michael Casa, Delmaine Peterson, Z Jits, Aaron Keith, Gregory S. Acker, Hexapuma, Sa- Tom San Filippo, Justice Brennan, Zutsu Taylor, Trevor Powell, Sue Lenya, Nanya, Daniel Nishma, Franco Frederick, Dane Galanowski, Ian Clifford, Axel Cisneros, Slayton Perry, Joseph Kerman, Brett Summers, Blake, Donovan Russell, Noah Nicoella, Zuki, Matt Porsche, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, Hulam, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Gillis Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, Brucha, Jeremy So, Michelle Pell, Silvanos, Eddie Del Castillo, Jacob Blaster, Luis Correa, Deke, Chris P. Erbakken, Tyler Lindley, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Justin Gower, Kayuma Kelly, Dave McCoy, Valco Malek, Gabe Leonard, Ronnie, DNA Tech, Michael Dean, MJV1, Maurice Cortois, Wesley Sager, Chrysantine, Mike Sharona, Y. Truly, Roman, William W. Draper, Air Rath, Spantum G. Spamptum, Henry Zhang, Stephen Hart, Spray Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Amiable Chief, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, James Anderson, Shakir, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, R. Pete Sharma, Mead and Pork, Jimmy MG, Mads, Matthew Lazier, and Benjamin Oshley, Mark Mitchell, Shield TV, Couteau, Aaron, John Wasink, Mohammed, John DeBont, Pulse Media, Sean Ashmont, Daniel Dewar, Stephen Jang, JSMMH, Georgie Kastadanov, PCBs22, Reginald Ari, Norethio, Ivan, Charles Russell, Hal Buma, Adarsh Adithia, The Grid, Andrew S., Chris Rich, Powell, Zigartowski, Desist, Zabit03, and thank you to Sahara for the music. <laughs>